Shield everyone, it's great to be with you this morning and it's great to be kicking off our Advent series this year. It's kind of hard to believe that it's time for Advent already. Uh, hearing Christmas carols in the supermarket a few weeks ago really threw me out. I thought surely it can't be Christmas already. I swear it was like July last week and I'm not emotionally ready for Michael Bublé yet and I'm honestly not sure I ever will be. But uh, I've tried to embrace my inner Jeremy Vargo and to take it in my stride. This time last year, uh, 2020 memes, or memes as my boomer brothers and sisters in Christ like to call them, were running rampant online. I wonder if you remember any of them. Memes like this, and this, and this, and people were printing t-shirts like this. In fact, research published in the Journal of Psychology of Popular Media has shown that people were engaging with memes like these to help cope psychologically in the pandemic last year, and that to an extent, it kind of worked. But I wonder if you've noticed that this kind of internet humour has not lasted into 2021. I haven't even seen one 2021 meme. What last year was so sad it was funny, this year is just sad. And if you've been feeling a wee bit more sad than usual, you're not alone. One way to quantify our collective sadness over this last wee while is by looking at the hedonometer. National Geographic describes a hedonometer as a tool that measures global mood by sifting through messages posted to the social media site Twitter. Every day it randomly gathers 10% of all tweets in a dozen languages. Then it looks for specific words that have been ranked in terms of their positivity or negativity. Based on the frequency of these words, it calculates an average happiness or sadness level for that day. It's been tracking this data and for the last decade, and it shows that we are now more sad than we have been. This low point in sadness began last year, uh, beginning with the pandemic, and then was exacerbated by the following racial tensions. And our sadness is only heightened by our connectedness to the online world and through what is now referred to as doom scrolling or doom surfing. It's our perpetual tendency to check the latest bad news of the world. I've at times felt myself slip into doom scrolling, constantly checking on the COVID death rates or doing deep dives on negative world events such as the T20 World Cup. The Canadian Medical Association Journal reports the connection between uh, doom scrolling and human evolution, noting, we are evolutionary wired to screen for and anticipate danger, which is why keeping our fingers on the pulse of bad news may trick us into feeling more prepared. And this access we have to the sadness and doomedness of the world knows no bounds. Just this last week we've had Black Friday, the consumerist purge that happens every year where people fist fight over cheaply made kitchen appliances in the aisles of shops across the world. And at blackfridaydeathcount.com, someone has created a website so you can have a running total of how many people have died or been maimed in all this madness and where and when it happened. We are just a few clicks away from the sad and cruel realities of this world. And personally, this data about how we're feeling right now rings true for me. I've been feeling anxious and frankly sad about the state of the world. With the pandemic, with increased political polarization, the lack of social cohesion, 
uh, sensitive geopolitical situations and impending environmental disasters, it all feels a bit overwhelming, at times just a little bit hopeless. I, like many of you, have had my own personal struggles over the last year as well. We were stoked to have the uh, arrival of our beautiful baby girl Piper in July, which has been uh, absolutely amazing. But we, like many of our community, have been mourning the fact that we haven't been able to share her with so many of our loved ones, including my parents in Christchurch and the majority of our siblings. There's a very real sense that many of us are feeling at the moment that actually things aren't going particularly well. And I just want to name this and validate this for you wherever you are joining from today. The real question though is, what are we going to do about this? What is the way out of this mess that we find ourselves in? And ultimately, what can we put our hope in to make things right? Who or what is going to save us? Our secular culture presents a number of possibilities that could be called secular salvation myths. The first being human progress, that our hope is in our ability to, uh, through the development of new technologies, uh, to advance humanity and to solve its problems. It trades on the idea that since the Enlightenment, things have been getting better for us. And in a number of ways, it very obviously has. People live longer, we have better medical care than ever before, and we've been able to create better living situations for so many people. But also, in a number of ways, the development of new technology has caused a lot of problems and remains a significant threat to humanity. Two horrific world wars, the invention of the atomic bomb, drone strikes and climate change have proven that while scientific knowledge uh, that while the scientific knowledge we have gained has been helpful in a large number of ways, it does not hold the key to making this world as it should be. And in a number of cases, it has actually proved to do quite the opposite. And what we've seen is the developers of these kind of important technology uh, start to express regrets. The inventor of the atomic bomb, Robert Oppenheimer, worried and regretted that he had constructed, as he puts it, the destroyer of worlds. The inventor of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee, has recently said that Web has in a number of ways failed humanity rather than served it, and that it has ended up producing, with no deliberate action of the people who designed the platform, a large-scale emergent phenomenon which is anti-human. Perhaps 20 years ago, Zuckerberg's, Zuckerberg's uh, suggestion of the metaverse would have been exciting, but I don't think I'm alone in thinking that in the times that we're in, that actually sounds downright terrifying. Analytic philosopher John Gray points out the problem of putting our hopes and progress through technology to save us. He says this, science increases human power and magnifies the flaws in human nature. It enables us to live longer, and have higher living standards than in the past. At the same time, it allows us to wreak destruction on each other and the earth on a, scale, on a larger scale than ever before. Yes, scientific progress has been amazingly helpful in so many ways, but in other ways, it's fueled the fire of human flaws. Pastor Tim Keller puts it well when he comments this, the greatest threat to our hope for a better world is not the natural environment, but the various evils that continuously spring from the human heart. 
Science cannot eradicate human evil. In fact, it can give it more tools to use for its own ends. Whatever is going to be our saviour, whatever is going to get us out of this mess, is going to have to account for the human heart, the ground level of human action. Of course, this doesn't mean we give up on trying to progress as humans and create things for humans flourishing. Quite the opposite, actually. The call of God is to create and order this world for the good of others. However, in answering the question of what our ultimate hope is and what will ultimately save us, human progress through technology does not ultimately prove to hold the key. Another suggestion of secularism is that maybe our political systems can save us. In a lot of ways, politics has replaced religion as the dominant faith and salvation story in the West. People no longer get their sense of identity and hope in their religious faith, but instead get it from their political systems. This happens in the church as well. The fervency and emotiveness that this has brought to politics is concerning to say the least. Shadi Hamid comments, if secularists hoped that declining religiosity would make for a more rational politics drained of faith's inflaming passions, they are likely disappointed. As Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, ideological intensity and fragmentation have risen. The more people invest their hopes and salvation into political systems, the more polarized we become. And something I've noticed that really worries me is uh, not just people's hopes in their own political systems to save them, but that they also want to be rescued from other people's political systems, that other people's views are viewed as existential threats to be saved from. New Testament scholar and theologian Michael Bird suggests um, suggest and asks the question of whether we, as followers of Jesus, are prepared to break from the polarization of our politics in order to engage in a more authentic mode of discipleship. And he suggests... To follow Jesus will inevitably require us to walk away from long-held political loyalties in order to reorder our lives around a new constellation of values shaped by Jesus' teachings, his examples, his death and resurrection, and his lordship over all things. We don't follow the way of the right or the left or the center, but the way of Jesus. Certainly, uh, some political systems and ideas are better than others. And certainly, God's people are called to bring flourishing to this world through engaging in politics. But again, this alone is not going to get us out of this mess. We often delude ourselves into thinking that if our political systems were implemented, then the world would magically turn into some sort of utopia. But political systems are always human systems. And like what we see with human progress, until the heart is dealt with, our political systems will ultimately not save us. Finally, we have the self. If salvation isn't found in technology or human political systems, maybe looking within can give us some sense of hope. Maybe looking within and discovering our true, authentic self will make things okay. Or at the very least, we can learn of ways to soothe ourselves in the face of what we are facing. Of course, this self-focused attitude has been profited by the $16 billion self-help industry. And so the very thing that's meant to help trades on our anxiety that we aren't okay and seeks to profit from it. The self-help industry simultaneously and ironically suggests that it's ourselves we need saving from, but also that we are the people to do it. 
I would suggest that in this time we find ourselves in, uh, it's not self-help we need, but just help. We need something outside of ourselves to intervene into human affairs to save us and to make things right. When we focus our lives in on ourselves, we end up giving ourselves far too much credit when things go well and too much grief when things go badly. And this focus on the self only contributes to the rampant cultural narcissism we see today. Interestingly, the word narcissism comes from the Greek god Narcissus, who steered too long at his reflection in a lake and fell in and drowned. For Narcissus, this obsessive focus on the self ended up being his downfall. And despite this contemporary focus on the self, we still see our culture grasping for something more. The rise of new spirituality shows that people aren't satisfied with their own individual material existence. People want something more. Leaving us in this confused world where, as uh, Rachel Simons quips, we have people who say things like, God isn't for me, but also, I can't make it to happy hour because I have to recharge my obsidian after work. And so if these things can't save us, what can? What can we really hope in? For our answer, let's turn back to our passage in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Our only hope and secure hope, our only true hope, is that God would rend the heavens and come down and do something about the mess that we're in. Our salvation lies in the hands of God, not in human technology or ideas or from within, but from up. From the all-powerful God who knows us comprehensively and knows what we need. And that's exactly what Advent is all about. It's a journey in understanding and living in the reality that God has rendered the heavens. God has come down to save this world. That God and Jesus meets our unfulfilled hope that he would come and save us from our brokenness because we can't do it on our own. Isaiah continues on, for when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Israel was banking on God's help, not out of blind faith, but because, they, um, because of what they had seen God do for them in the past and for their ancestors. They have seen God do the very things they couldn't do for themselves. They had found themselves exiled in Egypt and in need of salvation, and God had come through. Now they find themselves in exile again, and they are crying out, God, rend the heavens, do only what you can do. They have tried uh, with their, their human systems, with their own power, and they are tired. Later in Isaiah 64, we hear this admission. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. Israel, like us, was tired of trying to save themselves. Our own efforts come up short. This phrase, filthy rags, here is using a pretty crude and provocative image of menstrual rags to describe the efforts to save themselves. But let's hear the words of the very wise Mark Sayers. He says, All our human programs, our desire for home, for place, our Babel-infused dreams of an enlightened, placeless utopia, our political programs, both left and right, our individual seek for satisfaction, all come to naught. Creation still groans. Self 
blood, soil, technology, ideology, religiosity cannot save us. The only hope is found in the Saviour who would come and die, triumphing above all the powers, the principalities, the elemental forces of the world over you and me. As we begin this Advent journey together, I invite you to cast your burdens onto God, to trust in what he will do because of what he's already done, to trust that God holds this world safely in his love and he will restore it beyond what it has been. I invite you to relinquish your anxiety of the future into God's hands and to give up on the human tendency to earn or work for our own salvation. Everything within me hates Christian cliches. I find them cringy and embarrassing and often unhelpful. And I find myself wanting to roundhouse people who say things like, let go and let God. But even the hypocrite, uh, I want to offer up one uh, cliche this morning, not least because it's the very thing I need to hear myself. And it's this, God's got this. God's got this and ultimately everything is going to be okay. God has stepped onto the stage of human history and is redeeming the world, doing the things we can't do for ourselves. God has rendered the heavens and appeared in the surprising person of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. May you truly in your hearts experience this, this Advent. To end, um, if you've got your Advent cards with you, uh, grab that, otherwise we'll have it on the screen, and let's pray the collect for this day together. Almighty and ever-loving God, with your people through the ages, we put our trust in you. Lord, this good world needs your help. With all God's people, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, living Saviour, come to your world which waits for you. Amen.